and welcome back to What is Qualitative Anyway? Today we are looking at Chapter 11 of the Qualitative Research Methods book. Um, it is uh, an introduction to content analysis. So the chapter is pretty lengthy, so I'll try to go ahead and get into it, but it describes content analysis as a careful, detailed, systematic examination and interpretation of a particular body of material in an effort to identify patterns, themes, and assumptions and meanings. So um, the different material that you're using are a more of an obtrusive materials. Um, you're looking at social artifacts it mentions. So you're looking at written documents, even interviews that are transcribed, um, books, movies, TV shows, even like street art and graffiti, something that we looked at in the previous chapter. Um, so the analysis is designed to code the content as data in a form that can be used to address a research question. So the uh, chapter moves on to analysis of qualitative data. It has three major approaches to qualitative data analysis. The first one being an interpretive approach, which I apply to the symbolic interaction theory. Um, so with this one, you're looking, in other words, human action can be seen as a collection of symbols expressing layers of meaning. So either look for a more deeper, latent meaning to that data, or you can look at, um, organize it in a way that you're looking for patterns in human activity or interaction, finding those different meanings. But in the end, you're interpreting that human interaction uh, from that text and finding different connections. And from here, it moves on to social anthropological approaches, which with this one, it's linked to pretty much field notes. Um, you're these researchers are out in a field, uh, maybe within a certain community, whatever it may be, but they're out actually taking field notes, recording the world um, around them, interpreting that, and um, usually it's interested in the behavioral regularities of everyday life. It says language and language use, rituals, ceremonies, relationships, and pretty much, you know, the general day-to-day -day life of whatever um, field that they're in that they're looking at. Um, so with that, they are taking those notes to, and then, you know, using those different texts to find the different patterns across, you know, the, the different materials that they have. So I kind of applied it to structural functionism, just looking how the everyday life is functioning within that community that they're looking at. From here, it moves on to collaborative social research approaches. So with this one, I applied it to a concept in sociology that we previously looked at, participatory action research, just because the work has the intention of accomplishing some kind of change or action. And it mentions how um, the researcher as stakeholders um, in the situation in need of change or actions, the people within that community are stakeholders and they may, you know, part of the goal is to um, analyze and, pro, you know, provide information and then hopefully in some way produce change. And then it moves on to content analysis and theory, and it has three different approaches to this one as well. The first one being conventional content analysis, which is a grounded approach. So you're looking at theories based on that specific um, document under analysis for whatever subject or study that you're looking at. You're going to look um, at evidence related to that specific um, area of studies. And then from here, it moves on to direct content analysis. So this one, you're using that approach approach from conventional content analysis, but instead with the, the coding of the data, you're going to look at maybe some of the hidden intent, what, um, what other attitudes or behaviors do you see 
based on the data that you're collecting. And then summative content analysis. Um, so this begins from existing words or phrases in the text itself and counts them. Then the researcher extends his or her exploration to include latent meanings and themes that uh, are apparent in the data. Asking your questions, the researcher will interpret the data to look for any positives or negatives within that workplace. So this as well um, is looking at more latent meanings and themes within that research. You're digging a little bit deeper after the research that you collected. But uh, from here it moves on to content analysis as a research technique. The definition that it gave here it made it a little bit more clear for me. So. Uh, Content analysis is a research technique for making replicable and valid inferences from text or other meaningful matter to the contents of their use. Looking at something in context, you are making your inferences based on that, um, based on the context that you have and the different meanings and symbols that you're seeing within that research. Um, to mention in this part of the chapter, criteria of selection is an important uh, part of the process. You wanna make sure that you know um, what is going to be coded, how it's going to be coded, uh, how the codes are to be used in the analysis. So you want to know what you're looking for and how you'll recognize it before you start looking for it. You know, I think this, process of content analysis is a lot about organization and um, focus on what you're looking at, what you're, because uh, I think it can get pretty muddy if you're not aware of what exactly you're looking for, since a lot of it, I think, is open to interpretation of the researcher. It goes on to mention um, a portion of the chapter 11.3.1, quantitative or qualitative. And so it does say content analysis is not inherently either quantitative or qualitative. I think because there are different approaches that you can take where you're using kind of both of it. You're, you're still looking at data, but then you're still interpreting that data, which is more qualitative. And from here, it goes on to looking at manifest versus latent content analysis. And simply what that's referring to is manifest context is a content is something that is uh, surface level you see it um, I guess more uh, uh, immediately versus latent content that's something that's interpreted um, from the text and you analyze it and then gain that more in-depth understanding of the text and so in this portion of the chapter it does give some cautionary um, advice as far as making sure that you should be cautious not to claim magnitudes as findings in themselves because in the end, I mean, I think any research like this is um, interpretive uh, to the reader as well. So you're just offering this information up. And then also um, it mentions one does not have to list every example of a concept in order to claim that is a significant analysis. So even though you're finding things that I guess uh, corroborate with what you're trying to say, it is you don't have to list everything to make that valid. I think you um, run the risk of losing interest from uh, your audience. And then uh, also to give a little bit more meaning to the participants rather than just um, saying participant one or two, giving a description of the participant, like it says here, Respondent Jones, a 28-year-old African man who works as a bookkeeper states, because when the re reader or the audience is learning more about your research and your content analysis, by putting that out there, they're also able to maybe discern the connections that you're making by giving them those descriptives of the person that you're you're speaking about. It just um, clarifies the you know all the all the information that you're providing them. It kind of gives them a clearer picture, something to focus on um, to put a 
a picture uh, to a name to, I guess. Mentions in vivo codes and sociological constructs. So in vivo codes are uh, the codes of the person that you are researching and how you're interpreting their description of certain uh, maybe words or meanings that are how they're meaning it, their interpretation of it, how they're connecting it to themselves. And then in contrast, sociological constructs, which you can kind of just think of as something that you're looking at the, the language, the words, and then constructing your analysis based on that. So it mentions these categories may be revealed in the coding of the text, but do not necessarily reflect the consciousness perspective of the speaker. So you are still interpreting their you know, words, but it doesn't necessarily mean that is what they were thinking. It's in the end an interpretation. It's looking at, um, from here, building grounded theory. So, you know, um, determining it inductively, deductively, but I think it's always a combination of both. It's kind of used interchangeably in here. And then from here, it goes on to what to count. So it gives you different um, content to look at and how to figure out how to use it in your research. Words, themes, characters, paragraphs, uh, items, concepts, semantics. Um, I won't go into too much detail in that to save some time, but um, the next important part to it was uh, classics and our classes and categories. So I guess, you know, what are the classifications of maybe the groups or the individuals that you're looking at or um, in, in whatever field of study? There's the common classes, which I associated with, you know, um, demographics, uh, age, gender, social roles, things like that. Then the special classes, which is something that is derived more from the community itself. It can be um, something that is understood within those certain boundaries. Um, and then there's theoretical classes. So just like theory, it's, um, it's a question, uh, almost an assumption. It's something that is taken from the, uh, the data that has been analyzed. From here, it moves on to discourse analysis and content analysis, which um, go together since content analysis is looking at communication. And it mentions to the social scientists, however, the interesting aspect of this discourse is not merely what is said or which words are used, but the social construction and apprehension of meanings thus created through the discourse. With content analysis, it's examining discourse language, you know, how the how that communication is distributed within um, communities or communications to find those different maybe um, social and cultural contexts. It includes, you know, how, where, when the discourse arises in a given social and cultural situation. So context is important in regards to studying um, discourse, I think, and, you know, in any type of research. So towards the end of the chapter uh, here, it's talking about open coding, um, which is I kind of interpreted to having an open mindset, but still being focused. Um, I think within this type of research, it can be easy to kind of get lost in what you're doing. So it's important to stay focused. So it does give a few, I guess, grounded ways to stay grounded. Uh, first, ask the data a specific and consistent set of questions. So I interpreted that, you know, as staying on task, make sure that you're, as we've read throughout this books, um, re-asking yourself the research question, making sure that it's applied correctly, um, interpreted correctly, that you understand it correctly, and just changing it as you need to to make sure that it falls within those lines. Second, analyze the data minutely. Be meticulous with what you're looking at. Uh, it says you begin with a wide opening, a broad statement, narrow the statement through the body by offering substantial backing. 
and finally at the small end of the funnel present a refined tightly stated conclusion so that's kind of what i was mentioning before uh, third frequently interpret the coding to write a theoretical note you know note observations that you're seeing within what you're reading the diff you'll find different things in there that you can kind of make connections to and go back to because um, I have many times where I've done that, I've, I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm connecting that to something. And then I forget to notate it, and I'm like, oh, where is that? Like, I know I read it. I know it would be perfect for what I'm trying to explain right now. Very frustrating when I do that to myself. Um, fourth, never assume the analytic relevance of any traditional variable um, and so on until the data shows it to be relevant. Here, um, there's coding frames, and there's a subtopic within that interrogative hypothesis. Uh, it kind of gives you a testing process, which I just kind of correlated back to the scientific method. You know, the more that you see something, the more validity it has. If the research that you're getting is not connecting to what you're doing, then you need to reformulate your hypothesis, your question, your theory, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, it goes on to why it works and why it fails, like usual. So why it works is it can be cost effective. The data can be uh, unobtrusive, non-reactivity, uh, non-reactive. So that's helpful you know it's not affected by um, any preconceived notions that are related to you know your topic um, and then why it fails relying on existing uh, content existing data it can it can become convoluted um, you can have like just a lot of information that maybe isn't relevant or you may not have a lot of information available uh, like you would but hopefully all that made sense um, chapter was kind of long. I was trying to interpret it best I could, but it is helpful in regards to how I can do my um, research, especially in regards to the parts where, you know, it's saying to stay on task, um, to make sure, you know, what your research question is, what your theory is, that you're always going back to it to make sure that you are staying connected to that, um, being descriptive in regards to your respondents. Um, but also remembering that you're still interpreting their information that they're giving you. So uh, it's still an interpretation. It doesn't mean that it's um, some type of valid, concrete, empirical evidence. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Have a good day.